Um, as Terry said, my name is John Egan. I'm the church planning apprentice here, which basically means in the next couple years, I'll be planning a new church in Winter Haven, just like we did with Redeemer Southwest. It's been great over the last couple months since my wife and I and our kids moved here to get to know many of you. I've had coffee, had meals with a lot of you. If I haven't gotten to know you, I would love to do that at some point. That does not mean that I'm recruiting you to come with me to the church. I'm just trying to get to know as many people as possible here in the area. Um, also meet my wife, Katie, she's in the back, um, and our four kids, Elizabeth, Rebecca, Susanna, and the baby boy, Jonathan Jr., who they affectionately call JJ. So, as I said, I'm excited to, to be here with you all this morning to share God's word um, with you. I've had the opportunity to preach at Southwest a couple times, but this is my first time being with you all. And this morning, we're going to continue in our series in the book of Romans, as we've been doing the last few weeks. But before we look at our specific text this morning, which will be Romans 12, verses 9 and 10, I want to reflect on the text that Drew read to us a couple weeks ago, which is one of the more famous passages in the Bible, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Because in verse 2, you heard some incredible words. You heard the words, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's the it's the transformative power of the gospel in those two verses. Now, when we say the gospel, what we mean is we mean the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And we, when we say that it's transformative, what we mean is that it has power. It has power to actually change who we are, to change our hearts, and to change our minds. And that's what J Drew shared a couple weeks ago. The reason I bring that back up is because the rest of chapter 12 and the rest of Romans, Paul is going to list the characteristics of what it means to be a gospel-transformed person. What does a person who's been transformed by the renewing of their minds look like? And so last week you talked a little bit about what does a person look like with their gifts and how do they use those in the church? We're going to eventually talk about how we should treat one another. We're going to talk about how we should respond to government authority and so on. But it's vital to remember and to repeat to ourselves that these characteristics that Paul commands for us in the rest of the book are rooted in the work that Jesus did in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And as a parent, I see this sort of repetition pattern in the way that I teach my children. As I instruct them, as I command them, as I sometimes discipline them, as I talk to them about the various areas of their life and their behavior, it's imperative that I remind them that my love for them is not based on their ability to obey those instructions. I want them to obey those, but my love for them is based on my relationship to them as daddy. They didn't choose me as their father. That was something that was declared true about them when they were created. And so as we explore the book of Romans this morning and the next few weeks, I want you to remember that the core of the instructions and commands that Paul is going to give us is the transformative work of Jesus in our hearts and our minds. That is the good news of the gospel. Not how good you are at obeying those commands although he does want us to do that. We're going to look at the two verses 
again, nine and 10, but I want those one and two buzzing in the back of your minds. But before we read those, let's pray this morning. Father, as we go to your word, we ask for your help in remembering that transformation is your work. That there is nothing we have or can do to change our own heart. As we read from your word this morning and explore it together, continue to remind us that all of these things are possible only by your grace through the work of Jesus. Encourage our hearts, speak to us by the power of Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I said again, this morning we're in the book of Romans. We're looking at chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Um, it's, it, it's printed in your worship bulletin. If, you're, if you want to find it in your own Bible, Romans is about three-fourths of the way through after the book of Acts. After I, as I read these two verses, I want you to reflect on a word that you're going to see twice in those verses. It's a word that's very common in the Bible. It's a word that's very common in our culture. And that word is love. What is love? What comes to mind when you think about love? Who are the people or the things that you think about? Reflect on that as I read these two verses. Let's look at God's word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So as you thought about love, as I read those, what came to mind? The reason I ask that question is because love is a, a rather difficult word to define. So if you're like me, you probably thought either in terms of ways that you express love or receive love, or maybe you thought about people that you love or that love you. So for example, some of you have heard of the five love languages. It's kind of a spiritual test that helps you understand the ways that you give and receive love. So they, they talk about physical affection. They talk about the giving and receiving of gifts. They talk about serving. They talk about speaking or hearing words of affirmation or spending quality time, right? These are some of the ways, these are some of the hows of love. How do we give love? How do we receive love? Or when I think about love, I think about my wife, or my children, or my friends. I think about who I love. And again, it's natural for us to do this because love is so difficult to define. But it's also difficult sometimes to think about who and how we love. Because how quickly can you name someone in your life that you know who loves the wrong way or loves the wrong thing. It doesn't usually take us very long to think of somebody like that. But before we get self-righteous, reflect on how many times you've loved the wrong thing or the wrong person. I know for me, it's often too many times to count. So I wanna suggest that we have a love problem. We don't know how or who to love very well. And Paul recognizes this problem. Look again at the beginning of verse 9. Let love be genuine. Paul recognizes 
the problem. The word genuine here contains the root for our word hypocrite. So what Paul is saying is let love be unhypocritical. Let it be real. Let it be authentic, or the way it's translated here, let it be genuine. And this implies that we have a love problem. Something must be wrong or have the possibility to go wrong with our love if Paul needs to command it to be genuine. See, everyone in the world recognizes that love is a powerful force, that it has the ability to change things. Another Paul, Paul McCartney of the Beatles, said, all you need is love. Martin Luther King Jr. said, love will save our world. Gandhi said that love can envelop the whole world. And Jesus himself said, the greatest commandment is love. So if love is vitally important to nearly everyone, Christian and non-Christian, then why is the world still the same? Why hasn't it changed by the power of love? Well, I don't think it's because love itself is incapable or defective. I think it's because the human heart is defective. Something is wrong with the way that we love. And this is where we go back again to verses one and two that we talked about at the beginning. Paul commands our love to be genuine because Jesus has transformed our hearts. Jesus has made it possible for our love to be genuine. So because Jesus has done that, we can know how to love and who to love, which are our two points this morning. So first, let's look at how to love. Look again at verse 9. Paul says three things about how we should love. One, we should love genuinely. I already said a word about that, but I'll say a few more things. We should love by abhorring or hating evil. We should love by holding fast to what's good. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul actually uses in verses 9 and 10 two different Greek words for love. We'll talk about the one that he uses in verse 10 when we get there. But in verse 9, the word is agape. So far in Romans, every time that Paul has used the word agape, it's been in reference to the agape of God. The love of God. So he's talked about God's love being demonstrated on the cross, God's love being poured into us, God's love refusing to let us go. Agape is divine God love. Yet here Paul is using it to describe our love. Our love is to be characterized by divine agape love. The only way for it to be genuine is for it to come from God. And the only way for it to come from God is verses 1 and 2, that we're transformed by Jesus. So if we were writing verse 9 immediately after verses 1 and 2, we could say, you've been transformed, therefore let your love be genuine. The theologian John Stott says that this divine Agape, God love, the key essence of what it means to be a Christian. The identity of the Christian is someone that has been transformed by God's love. And then to have a life overflowing 
with that genuine, authentic God love. And that's only possible because it's first been poured into us by the transforming work of Jesus. And Jesus himself told us this. In John 13, this is what he says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love, agape, one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus is saying, I've already loved you, and that love has transformed you. It's corrected the defect in your ability to love. So that when the world looks at you, when it sees that agape, divine love that you have for one another, they're going to see something going on that's foreign to the way they think about love. That's why the theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones says that if we can get this right, then we can't go wrong. If we love with an agape, divine love, or as Paul says, a genuine love, then we can't go wrong. Because the ability to do that only comes if we've been transformed by Jesus. So if you want to know how to, how to love rightly, how to love genuinely, it begins with Jesus. It begins with the transformation of the heart that only he offers. If you don't know Jesus, then your ability to love will always be missing something. It will never quite be the genuine love that Paul commands here, because it can't be. You can't love with God's love if you don't know God. Now Paul continues on here and he expands out in verse 9 what it looks like to love genuinely. We're to abhor, that's to hate, what's evil and hold fast to what's good. Now I want to pause for just a moment. Um, some of you may hear the word abhor or when I say hate and might be a little bit confused because we live in a culture that sees hate as absolutely incompatible with love. I saw a sign yesterday when I was watching college football that somebody was holding up and it said, true love is without hate. So to hear those two words, love and hate, connected, much less in the same verse, can be difficult to understand. And I acknowledge that difficulty. If it really bothers you, I would love to, to talk a little bit more after the service or another time about that. But let me offer a very quick explanation that might be helpful. When you see something that's evil or destructive or unjust, you have an inherent desire to see that thing ended. When we see racism, starvation, abuse, atrocities that are happening around the world, when we see those things being committed, we long for those things to end. And that desire is what the Bible calls hate. So for example, when people witnessed what the Nazis were doing to the Jews. It was right that they would hate that. It was right that they would hate to see those atrocities. And we can hate what's being done by someone and want it to end 
but still love them as a person because they're an image bearer of God. In fact, to truly love them as an image bearer would be to hate the evil that they're doing and want it to end. Because we actually believe that it would be good for them for that evil to end. So I don't know if that's helpful at all, but again, I would love to talk more later if that's a big hang-up for you. Because the Bible talks about hate in other places. If that's a hang-up, that can be a difficult thing to process. Let's continue by asking a question now about love and hate in our hearts. I want you to think about your own heart, and I want you to ask, do I really hate evil, hold fast to good? But what I don't mean is, do you hate what you think is evil and hold fast to what you think is good? Because everybody already does that. What I'm asking is not your commitment to your own sense of evil and good. I'm asking you to evaluate your commitment to what God calls evil and good. Because when I do that, I actually start to feel a little bit nervous. Because I look back at my life and I see the way that God has changed me over time. And there's some things that I used to call good that I now call evil. And there are some things that I used to call evil that I now call good. So that question causes me to realize that my evaluation of good and evil has not always been the same as God's. There are places in my heart where that's still true. And I'm sure there are places in yours as well. So not only does Jesus' transformation of our heart help our love to be genuine, it also helps us begin to see good and evil in the way that he does. As Luther Ingram saying, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. We all recognize that love has the power to transform what we think about good and evil. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that good and evil are fluid things that can change based on each person. What I am saying is that our ability to see something as rightly good and evil is dependent. It's dependent on the condition of our heart. And so when our hearts are broken and defective because of sin, that's a disastrous thing. Because we're blinded to what God truly calls good and evil. But when our hearts are transformed, it can be a wonderful thing. We can begin to see good and evil the way that God does. And that's rooted, again, in that transformative work of Jesus, that divine agape love that he pours into us. Only through that can we begin to see good and evil the way that God does. Some of you may have heard of Ken Parker. Ken was a white nationalist that was living in Jacksonville. He was attending the University of North Florida. At one point, he was suspended from UNF for posting a picture of himself with all of his Nazi tattoos and holding an AR-15. 
Last year, he attended and marched at the uh, racist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. At one point in his past, he had been a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, recruiting new members in Georgia and Florida. In Ken's mind, the white race was good and all others were evil. However, during this last year, Ken met an African-American pastor who was having a cookout with his congregation near Ken's apartment. Ken says that he looked over, he didn't know the pastor, but that, quote, there was something different about him. So for the next few months, Ken began meeting with this pastor. He began visiting his church. He visited for the first time last Easter. A month after that, he shared his history with the congregation and was met not with hate or fear, but with love. And on July 21st, just about a month ago, Ken was baptized and is now having all the racist tattoos removed from his body. He says that the Bible has caused him to reject his racist views. He's repented to his church, to the North Florida community, to the city of Jacksonville, and he says to anyone who he led into hate and anger. He said, quote, I apologize from the bottom of my heart. This is not what Jesus would have done, and I need to start following him. This is an incredible story about how the agape, divine, genuine love of God can change the way a person sees good and evil. One year ago, Ken loved evil, and now he hates it. One year ago, he hated good, and now he holds fast to it. That's the power of Jesus' transformation. It shows us how to love. So what does this look like for each of us? How do we apply Paul's command to genuine love in our lives? Well, as we've done all morning, the first thing we ask is, has, have I been transformed by Jesus? For some of you, you hear that question and you think, I know that I love Jesus. I know that I trust him. I believe in him. But I'm, I haven't had this radical transformation that Ken had. I still struggle to love and hate the things that Jesus loves and hates. And so that question can surface doubts for you. To wonder, have I really been transformed? Let me encourage you by saying that transformation is a process. We don't wake up one day seeing everything the way that Jesus does, able to love genuinely. Instead, for us, moment by moment, we repent of the ways that we fall short of genuine love. We repent as we see the places in God's word where we don't hate what's evil and we don't hold fast to what's good. And we can do that because Jesus has already done the work on our behalf. He loved us and poured that love into us. So slowly, God softens our hearts and he transforms us. Slowly, we're able to love the way that he loves and we're able to hate the things that he hates. 
Others of us are the opposite, though. And it's worth being direct for just a second because it needs to be said. Some of us say that we love and trust Jesus, but our love's actually not been transformed at all. Our love has no genuineness or authenticity to it. We don't hate the things that God hates. We don't love the things that he loves. We come to church, we sing songs, we say prayers, we listen to this sermon because we're supposed to or because it makes us feel better or because it looks good. But if we really opened up and examined our hearts, then we haven't been transformed. If that's you this morning, I wanna say that Jesus wants you. He's calling on you to repent and to be transformed. Not to transform yourself, but to hand him your broken heart, your defective love, and let him heal it. Would you consider doing that this morning? Because when you do, you experience the transformation that Jesus offers. And you learn how to love, but you also learn who to love. Look back at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now the immediate question for us to ask in this verse is who's Paul calling us to love here? He could be talking just about the way that we're to relate to fellow Christians. The word translated one another just occurred back in verse five that Drew talked about. It's used there to describe the relationship of believers to one another in the church. I also mentioned that Paul uses a different word for love in the Greek in verse 10. That word is Philadelphia. It's where we get the name of our city, the city of brotherly love. And throughout the scripture, that's the word that's used most commonly to talk about love between fellow believers. So you could argue here that Paul is now talking only about the love that we're to have amongst one another in the church. Now, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. I just don't think Paul expects that love to characterize our relationships in the church and end there. I believe that he expects it to expand outside the church because he's actually gonna go on in the following verses that we're not gonna talk about this morning, but he's gonna go on to talk about blessing the people that persecute you. He's gonna talk about loving your enemies. He's gonna talk about not repaying evil for evil, not avenging yourself, living peaceably with one another. These are clearly not references to how the church should behave, to how believers should behave with one another. So I think what Paul's doing here is he's expanding in verse 10 our love from this is how it should look in the church and how it should move outside the church. Paul is giving us a full theology about how to love, or sorry, who to love. He's clearly talking about the ways in which we love one another. That's a primary aspect of the Christian life. But, that love, but there's an expectation that that love is not going to end there. It's going to extend out to those outside the church in the same way. 
So I want you to take a few minutes, and I want you to look, or sorry, I'm going to take a few minutes, and I'm going to look at each of the words that Paul uses here to describe that love. He talks about honor and affection. The word affection here is more than just the gentle, sort of friendly, I like you, you like me, we care about one another, that, that we might normally think about with that word. A better way to say it would be a devoted family love. And that's again where we see clearly that Paul is beginning with our love in the church. We've been adopted into God's family. The core identity of the church is our relationship to God as our father. John 1 says that when we trusted Jesus, we became children of God. We gained all of the privileges that come with being his sons and daughters. What Jesus wants to do is create a family. Now, for some of you, that idea makes total sense. You had a wonderful family. So when you hear that God is in the business of creating a new family, that makes total sense to you. You had a wonderful family, praise God for that. It was a living example of what God's family should look like. But for many of you, that does not encourage you to think about God as your father or us as brothers and sisters in the family. Because some of you had families that were incredibly broken and damaged or dangerous. Let me say, I'm sorry for that. God did not intend the family to be that for you. But that means that these descriptions of family devotion to one another make no sense to you. But let me encourage you with this. Jesus came to make things new. Now that doesn't mean that he's going to, in this life, fix all the damage that was done by your family. He will one day. And he may do a lot of that work now. But there's no guarantee of that. It also doesn't mean that you're required to go back and fix all that damage yourself. That may not be a safe place for you to go back to. But what it does mean is that Jesus is inviting you into a new family. He invites us all, from good families or bad families, into his family. And it's a family that Paul tells us should be characterized from the start by love. And isn't that what we all long for? Don't we all want to be part of a family that's safe because it's full of love? And what a witness to the world that would be. A world that's full of broken families that could look at the church and say, there's something different about that family. And then when we expand our love from this new family outside to those people, they don't have a category for that. They look at us and they say, you love each other like that? And you love me like that? Where would the church be today if a love of family devotion was first 
on our church vision list. If it was the first thing that non-Christians saw when they looked at us. Paul is calling us here to prioritize that kind of love inside and outside of the church. The second word Paul uses, and we'll close by talking about this, is honor. Not just honor one another, but outdo one another in showing honor. The word honor here means something along the lines of a worth or a price or a value. In other words, Paul's saying that we should outdo one another in showing other people how valuable they are. How often do you think that way? I don't. I don't step into a room and think, my goal in this room is to show everyone else how valuable they are. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I, I walk into a room and I don't know how valuable other people are. Or I know that guy and I know he's not very valuable. And I get that because we live in a culture that's created a system for giving people value. And we can be really good at assigning people value based on that system. What have you done for me? What can you do for me? And the answer to those questions puts a value on you in my eyes. But is that God's value system? In Genesis 1, he says that he made everyone in his image. Every single person is a living, breathing image of God. American cultural values have not given me a system for measuring that. So using God's system of value means that I'm going to try to help every person I come across to understand the incredible value they hold as an image bearer. I did campus ministry for about 10 years, and during that time, I, I learned a variety of really good tools for how to communicate the message of Jesus to another person. But what I also learned in that time was that the most effective way to talk to a student about Jesus was to ask them about themselves. Francis Schaeffer once said that if he had 60 minutes to talk to a non-Christian, he would spend 55 minutes asking them questions. Because when you actually take the time to see another person as made in the image of God with incredible value and honor, then you'll be amazed at the ways they open up to you. Because there's a longing in all of us to be loved and honored for who we are. Because for Christians and non-Christians, the image of God inside of us wants to be known and honored and loved. But one of my favorite things about evangelism is just the opportunity to explore the story of a fellow image bearer. And then to find the places where that image is visible in the things that they love and the things that they're passionate about and the things they want to do with their life. And then to reconnect those things to the God who made them. To show honor to the parts of them that are reflecting his image. And so again, we do this inside and outside the church because the image of God is present everywhere. So where are you recognizing that or failing to recognize that in yourself or in others? Because some of you might struggle to see the places where you deserve honor. 
You might beat yourself up over your sin and your brokenness or your inability to be what you want to be. I want you to hear that you are infinitely valuable because of God's image in you. Some of you might struggle to see that image in other people. The Facebook friend who constantly posts things that just burn you up inside. The family member who has a completely different worldview than you and challenges everything that you say or do. What would it look like for you to engage that person not to win an argument or to convince them, but with the intent of seeing the image of God. See, that question brings us all the way back to the beginning of the verse, love. Love is the key to the Christian life. If we begin to ask in every interaction, in every decision, in every word that we speak, what would the love of Jesus have me do here, then things begin to radically change. That word honor that we just talked about, Paul uses it again in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 when he says that you and I were bought with a price. That's the word again. Honor, price, value. But the price in that verse wasn't our value it was Jesus's. He laid down the honor and the value that was due to him rightfully. He laid it down for our sake, for the sake of our value and honor. What would it look like to be a person that reflects that? Let's pray that he might transform us into a person of genuine love who shows honor to others. Jesus, thank you for laying down what was rightfully yours for our sake. Thank you for making us in your image, for transforming us through the power of your life and death. We pray that we might be defined by your love for us and that it might pour out of us into every place that we go with our brothers and sisters in the church and to all those who don't yet know you. In your name we pray. To receive these words, uh, this promise that as you go, he goes with you and as, as you discover uh, this week how to love or as that question comes up, how to love. Look to him. Look to him. Uh, he'll show you. He has shown you. And then who to love? Well, ask Holy Spirit for the wisdom, the guidance, the help to know who that is and when and how. All of those things. Uh, as you go, he goes with you. The promise of his presence with you, his power with you to accomplish those things through you. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.